Welcome to The Honest Report. A weekly podcast analyzing media coverage of the Arab-Israeli conflict, anti-Semitism, and radical Islamic terrorism. The Islamic State group posted a video calling on Palestinians to attack Israeli soldiers and civilians. At least five killed in B'nai Brak after the assailant went on a shooting spree firing from a motorcycle. Here's your host, Rob Walker. Given the continued failure of the boycott, divestment, sanctions, or BDS movement to affect grievous economic harm on the Jewish state, anti-Israel activists have pivoted in recent years to using international legal outlets to attack and defame the country. In addition to using legal outlets like The Hague and the International Criminal Court or ICC, these activists have also used rhetoric to help push their advances. By continuing to repeat misinformation such as that Israel is in defiance of international law, the Jewish state's reputation in international fora has been attacked. Our guest this week, Yifa Siegel, knows all about these efforts by inter-Israel activists and has helped to effectively fight back. As the former director of the International Legal Forum and as the current international director of UK Lawyers for Israel, Yifa has helped to innovate Israel's effective response to these lawfare efforts. Yifa is an international renowned speaker and expert on the subject of lawfare. Welcome to the Honest Report podcast. Yifa Siegel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much. Happy to be here. It's uh, it's my pleasure. I mean, you have quite a, a long and illustrious career in the in the space of uh, using legal advocacy to advocate for Israel. Uh, today, I wanted to talk about really the flip side of that, which I don't think is often discussed, which is how anti-Israel activists are also using the law. Now, of course, when I say the law, it can be in a municipal, uh, federal, international platform, but how exactly, on one foot, if you will, Yifa, are they using the, the legal mechanisms to defame uh, and attack Israel? Well, I think it's a it's an excellent it's an excellent question, and uh, and and before uh, we dive into the details, I want to talk in general of how the anti-Israel organizations or activists are actually using the law not in in the right way. They don't use the actual or the real interpretation of the law. And sometimes they're not even uh, using real um, terminology or legal terminology um, to defame Israel. And and I think they take advantage of two things. One is the fact that most people, the vast majority of people don't know the law. And, uh, and, And the second, really the reason why they're doing it is because if you don't try to frame it in a, as if Israel is violating international law, then all you're really left with is a political conflict. And that is really a lot less interesting and would gather a lot less attention, a lot less, uh, you know, people kind of eager to, to participate and, and to contribute. And so I think that's the motive for why they're doing it and, and how they can get away with it. And so I'll give you an example. They keep on using the term uh, illegal occupation. So illegal occupation, I don't know if your listeners are even aware, is not a part of, of the terminology that exists under international law. So you have occupation, obviously, but occupation is relatively neutral. Uh, you don't have legal or illegal occupation. I mean, you have legal or illegal other things, of course, uh, but not associated directly with the issue of occupation. And 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 despite that fact, uh, you 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 hear that term used or that fake term used all the time. Israel is an illegal occupier. 
which is not not only is it not true, it's not even possible because it's it's it, it, it's not a concept that <clears throat> sorry that exists under international law, and so that's an example of something that they have completely um, you know misrepresented or even made up uh, uh, to sound like legal terminology in order to defame or delegitimize uh, Israel, and then of course you have other. Uh, terms that do exist under international law, uh, but obviously are taken completely out of context and mis misrepresented uh, in, in the most extreme way when, when trying to apply it to Israel. For example, apartheid. They're using this term because it, 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 it gets people very emotional. Of course, everyone who remembers the South African apartheid and even the younger generation that didn't really uh, lived through that time, knows about it uh, because it's a very well-known movement and a very well-known uh, chapter in, in global history and international law. But of course, trying to apply it to Israel would be completely misusing, misrepresenting, even abusing this very, very important principle of international law. And so, but you see them getting away with it time and time again, and, and it kind of gathers popularity because what you see is you see, you know, uh, organizations or movements or conferences that are held that, that all of us that kind of introduce these kind of terms. And then other organizations or activists kind of refer back to what was said and others refer back to them and so on and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in a sea of, of, of seemingly respected and even prestigious experts using these type of terms without even you know bothering to check for themselves or or take it very seriously before they turn the finger and use such a you know such a principle to accuse uh, a state that is uh, obviously a member of the of, of the international community and so I think this is the first thing that we need to realize that they have taken you know the issue of international law and made it the focus. Uh, not necessarily in a way that really does uh, do do justice to international law or even to other cases where it was not or was not applied or maybe should have been applied, but just as as, as a strategy to kind of label Israel as, as a violator of international law, as a criminal state, as a as a illegal or or a state that should be delegitimized or even dehumanized. Uh, by using the legal terminology, and again, I repeat it because I think it's important. If they if 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 they didn't do that, all we were left with is a political conflict, just like a million other conflicts, and that I think would not have succeeded in gathering so much attention and so many you know emotions kind of emerging out of people that oftentimes really do have uh, the best intentions at, at heart. They are just ignorant and, and, and they haven't done the research for themselves. And the real problem that I think we're facing is the fact that, as I said earlier, you can find so many references and, 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 uh, of, you know, from experts, institutions, establishments, even UN entities, um, um, to kind of give that the credibility, quote unquote, that unfortunately it has gained. Why have anti-Israel activists found this concept of international law to be such fertile ground for attacking Israel? I think that we live in a time uh, that, well, thankfully, at least for uh, Western or liberal democracies, uh, human rights really is the most important value. Um, this, this wasn't always the case. Obviously, it's a very new phenomenon in, in, in the world. And so in the last few decades, it has truly become the, one of the most important values, if not the most by far even important value to the people in, the, in, in those liberal democracies. And so 
Um, if we look back at what the Arab League has tried to achieve in, even before the establishment of Israel, and I think we all know the, uh, a little bit about the history of the Arab boycott. But what I think people don't realize is that the Arab boycott back, at, back in the day was not ashamed of what it was truly trying to gain which is the isolation of the Jewish state and the, eventually the annihilation of the Jewish state. They were very upfront about that. And in a world where, you know, in, interests between states was the most important thing and human rights, not so much, that actually, you know, over a certain period of time was very, very successful. Thankfully, not, you know, successful to, to an extent that it actually got the Jewish state to be annihilated. But I think the economy of the new state of Israel suffered tremendously from this. And, uh, you know, I always give people the example. I grew up in, an, in, a, in a country that didn't have McDonald's and didn't have Pepsi Cola and didn't have uh, many other things. And uh, I survived that, if you can imagine such a childhood. Uh, but uh, the reason was because of the Arab boycott. And so as time progressed and, and human rights became, you know, the value, as I said, it, it, it couldn't it couldn't continue anymore. So countries in the West, primarily the United States, but also Germany and France and others have acted against the Arab boycott because of that, of, of their stated goal and legislation in the United States and other places have actually brought the, the, the demise of the Arab boycott. That what actually I think was the key in, 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 in shutting down the Arab boycott. And so if you see the new for if you see the BDS movement for what it is, which is really like the new uh, the new form that uh, the Arab boycott have have taken over the years. And I think what they did was very, very smart, unfortunately, but still very smart. What they did is they took the principle, let's boycott the Jewish state and eventually, you know, bring. Uh, bring them down to their knees. But we can't say that it's because we want to destroy Israel. We have to use the new, you know, the, the new values of the West in order to get our way. And I think this is exactly why they chose to frame it as a human rights movement. It's exactly why they chose to frame it as a, as a international law issue and Israel is a violator of international law. And I think it's also why they chose to frame it as a, you know, as, as a as a grassroots movement, as a populist movement, rather than a state driven boycott, as the Arab boycott clearly was. And and again, they were not shy about it. So I think that's what really led us to today. You know, they tested it out. If you remember the 2001 uh, infamous uh, Durban conference, uh, that was a trial run of this new concept. It was, I think it succeeded far beyond what they've expected, if you ask my opinion. And, and so they carried it, they, you know, they, they, they took it all away. And, and now when you talk to, you know, the anti-Israel movement, that's basically all they talk about. They talk about these fake international law principles or the uh, abuse of these international law principles. And, and, and they focus their efforts on trying to label Israel as a, as, a, as a criminal state. So how much of the use of international law as a cudgel against Israel is merely rhetorical in nature, Yifa? In other words, talking about how Israel violates international law, talking about Israel is a, uh, uh, you know, is a violator of, of international law versus actually trying to use levers of international law, such as the United Nations, such as the Hague, to actually achieve you know, their goals? Well, I think uh, I think it's both. And I think they kind of feed into each other uh, because uh, I was uh, very active when uh, the jurisdiction took place with the ICC. 
And, uh, you know, I think what we presented was a very, very strong legal argument. And, uh, and, and you look at the court's decision, the majority uh, anyway, and you see how they, they, you know, they use the same kind of tactics. They, they refer to articles, articles by these so-called experts and they refer back to uh, General Assembly resolutions, even though they have no legal status. No, they're not legally binding. And so, you know, we think sometimes or we try to consult ourselves by thinking that it doesn't matter, that, that General Assembly resolutions don't create law and rhetoric doesn't matter. But, you know, we, we, we do see them eventually translate into actions. And so I think your question is still open-ended because we, we don't know what's going to happen with the ICC or in other places. I can tell you that we've tried to, you know, that we've successfully uh, battled different initiatives that could have had real implications. Uh, in terms of uh, of law, uh, different uh, municipalities, as you said, that try to adopt resolutions boycotting Israel or even states uh, like Ireland, for example, or Chile. Um, you also see it with uh, you know the, the financial sectors, companies like Airbnb, which were, were thankfully defeated. Uh, at the time, and now with the giant called Unilever that uh, that eventually we had to struggle against because of uh, the Ben and Jerry's boycott. So, it, it, in addition to the rhetoric, uh, you you also see translated into real actions. And thankfully, uh, because the law is on our side and because the truth is on our side, oftentimes we are very successful in in encountering these efforts. Uh, but we have to continue with a great deal of care and a lot of concern because, uh, you know, you'll never know what tomorrow might lead. And you see the uh, committee of inquiry that was launched in the UN after a uh, guardian of the walls. And this is, I don't know if your, your viewers and listeners follow this, but this is unprecedented, unprecedented in scope and resources. Uh, and the fact that the people that are leading this committee are completely biased and there's no question about it. And, and there's no way of telling what the ramifications of such a thing might actually be, especially since this committee has a mandate of going on basically forever and ever and ever and having like an, a biannual Israel bashing uh, celebration uh, you know, until the end of times. And again, also another thing is that we have to be mindful of the fact that the young generation that is currently studying in universities across the Western world is brainwashed, oftentimes just, you know, intensely brainwashed by these uh, movements, by these organizations, by these activists. And so again, there's no way for us to know what's going to how this will translate into actions, let's say, in, in, in a few years time when these people actually start running companies or even countries around the world. And so um, I, I, I would like to say that I first of all, I, you know, we have an amazing network of brilliant people. And, uh, and the success so far was tremendous. And I think, you know, we, we should all be very proud of ourselves because, you know, we, we can outsmart them, at least until now, uh, at every turn. But the, the threat is still very big and we need to be, you know, more of us, more action, you know, more, you know, we need to be more active and more mindful of, of what's to come. Well, thank you very much, uh, Yifa, for your time. I mean, you certainly have your, uh, your hands full and looking forward to following your work moving forward. Thank you so much. And uh, I really appreciate the work that you've been doing. I, uh, I will say, I think, uh, Robert, that you and I go back like almost a decade now. 
And uh, you were just a young student, I think, when we first met. And uh, you and your organization have done such tremendous work. And I just applaud you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Yifa Siegel. And that's today's edition of the Honest Report podcast. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to our mailing list, our podcast channel, and follow us on social media for the most up-to-date news. If you like what you've heard, please consider a donation to support our continued efforts at www.honestreporting.ca slash donate. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.